Well, if you have a Bible uh, with you, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We're finishing up chapter 7. We're almost halfway through the Gospel of Mark. And our text today is Mark 7, verses 31 to 37. And if you're able to, I'd ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word today. Mark 7, verses 31 to 37. Mark writes, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us to grope around in the dark to find out and figure out on our own, which we couldn't do, who you are and how we might be made right with you through faith in Christ. We ask that you would work on us even now by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, for it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, um, as we saw last week, if you were here, this is uh, Jesus kind of trying to get away for for a time from from the... Uh, area of Jerusalem. He seems to be going further and further away. He's still kind of on his uh, meanderings in a sense, at least if you look at a map and try to trace his journey, it doesn't look like he's in a, going in a straight line to any particular uh, place. Um, well, here in our text, we see him leaving the, the region of Tyre. We looked at that last last week and going back to the region of the Decapolis. Now that, if you're familiar with the book of Mark or if you've been with us throughout this study, you might remember the name of that place, Decapolis, which means ten cities. We don't know exactly what those places were. Uh, it's a largely Gentile area. And back in chapter 5, Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, uh, you might know that in, it was in that place where Jesus cast, uh, don't know whether to call it a demon or demons, uh, named Legion out of a man that was living in a cemetery. Remember, this man was, uh, was possessed by this multitude of demons, Everyone was afraid of him. They couldn't bind him with chains. He would break the chains and scare everybody away. And yet when Jesus showed up and got off the boat, what happened? The man came running up, saw him from a distance, came running up to him and fell at his feet. And what did Jesus do? He had mercy on that man, cast the demons out of that man into a herd of pigs, a herd of swine, and they went off the cliff to their deaths. And then the people uh, held a parade for Jesus and said, oh, stay here. You know, we'll build you a house. We'll build you a nice church. No, they, they said, please, please leave. Their fear went up, not down. Uh, well, this is the same basic area uh, that Jesus comes back to once again, where they begged him once to leave. Well, now this man's friends, this deaf and dumb man, uh, his friends are now begging Jesus to lay, lay his hand Upon him. Now, we don't know if they heard of him through the preaching of that formerly demon possessed man who actually went about and preached to everyone uh, the great things Jesus had done for him. 
Well, in our text in verses 31 to 32, this is what Mark says. He says, Then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre, went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis, and they, we don't know who they were, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. So just like last, the previous verses in, in, that we looked at last time, verses 24 to 30, uh, what do you see? Jesus kind of trying to get away from, from things, trying to get away from the crowds and the, the attention, and yet no matter where he goes, even a place like Tyre, which is not where you'd expect someone to be looking for the Messiah, or even the Decapolis, this, this Gentile place, largely Gentile place, where the people had begged him to leave, suddenly someone hears he's there, and next thing you know, they're bringing someone to him for him to have mercy upon them. They Once again, they beg him to deliver their friend. Once again, what does Jesus do? He has compassion and mercy upon them. He doesn't turn anyone away. It's almost, you could say it's at least a theme, if not the theme of Mark. The, the theme of Mark is that Jesus, he tells us in chapter 1, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah and the Son of God. Well, a sub-theme that goes right along with that is that Jesus never turns away anyone who comes to him by faith. You never find once in the Gospel of Mark or any of the four Gospels, Jesus turning someone aside who genuinely comes to him by faith for help and for salvation. Well, this deaf and mute man in our text, you know, it's easy to look at this and say, well, here's another miracle, you know, something we don't expect to see in our time and, and place. Um, but that deaf and mute man, now I'm not making an analogy or a, or a um, I, mean, I am making an analogy, but I'm not making an allegory out of it. Um, this, this man, his, his condition is kind of a picture, isn't it? His condition was what it, exactly what it says. He was deaf and he was mute or very uh, unable somehow to speak properly. Um, but what is he a picture of? He's a picture of the real condition, at least part of it, of, of lost sinners. We saw another picture of the, of the condition of lost sinners in, in the last passage. Remember that, that girl that was demon-possessed? She was bound, possessed, oppressed, Matthew says, by, by a demon, and Jesus cast that demon out. Well, here... Mark gives us a picture through this account of this man uh, of, of all men outside of Christ, doesn't he? All men outside of Christ are incapable of truly hearing the gospel, the truth of the gospel and responding to it in repentance and faith. That's the condition of every man and woman outside of Christ. Romans 3.11, 3 that, that section of, on what we call total depravity, uh, Romans 3.11, he says, No one understands no one seeks for God on our own that's us outside of Christ that's everybody no one truly understands no one truly seeks for God Paul likewise in 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this the natural person the person without the spirit of God the, the unbeliever the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It doesn't mean that an unbeliever can't read the Bible and kind of you know, articulate what it says. That's not what it says at all. What does it say? The natural person, Paul says, does not what? Accept or understand the things of God, the things of the Spirit of God. So dead in sin, 
what does dead in sin mean? Paul talks about that at length in Ephesians chapter chapter 2. Dead in sin means that we are spiritually blind, deaf, dumb, and unfeeling. You know the old saying, dead men tell no tales. Dead men believe no truth. They don't, they don't believe the gospel on their own unless Christ makes them alive and grants them faith by his spirit and by his grace. So if anyone, this is kind of the, the story of the Bible, if, if anyone is going to be saved and everyone needs to be saved from their sin, if anyone is ever going to be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ must do the saving and must do all of the saving. Dead men don't meet God halfway. Dead men don't, you know, help. God doesn't help those who help themselves because dead and sin people don't help themselves. We don't, aren't able to do anything to bring ourselves to him. We aren't able to do anything to, to make ourselves more able to come to him by faith. In, in, outside of Christ, this man is a picture of each of us. Deaf, unable to even hear the message. Unable, the message can't make a dent. Jesus has to, as we're going to see, kind of use a, a, a kind of a form of sign language, you know, putting his fingers in his ears, looking up to heaven, all these things that the man could see but couldn't hear. And he's unable to, to even speak correctly. He's unable to even ask for what he needs. If you can imagine that, how helpless that must feel and must have felt to this, to this man. Well, the first thing we're going to see in our text here is the, besides the, the request for healing, is the manner, the way, the manner of, of healing. In other words, what did Jesus do when he went about, how did he go about healing this man of what he was suffering, his deafness, his muteness? Verses 33 to 35, rather, Mark describes this manner for us. He says, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Now, we saw last time Jesus seems to be trying very much to keep things mum, to keep things quiet. He doesn't want attention. He doesn't want crowds at this particular time. And so what does he do? You know, he's, he's, what does he not do? He doesn't, he's not trying to put on a show. He's not trying to hang a sign out the door for a healing clinic and have you know, thousands of people come beating down uh, his door. He's not trying to attract a crowd. So what does he do? He takes the man aside from the crowd, away from the crowd. There was already a crowd is what he's telling us. Privately. He's not saying no. He's not going to say, you know what, I'd heal this guy, but I know what's going to happen. I'll heal him and it'll draw attention. No, he, he draws him aside and shows mercy upon him that way. So he takes him aside privately. The next thing he does might sound kind of strange. It might sound unsanitary, maybe even gross uh, to you. What does he do? He puts his fingers into the man's ears and then it says, after spitting, touched his tongue. Um, after spitting, now I think the implication of the text is the spitting had something to do with touching his tongue. It wasn't, you know, like we might do spit and then do something. It, it, you know, so whatever the reason was, he did that. We don't know. It doesn't really say. Um, but why does Jesus? Why does Jesus do all that? Why does Jesus take him aside privately? Why does he put his fingers in his ears and, and spit and touch his tongue? One commentator, Sinclair Ferguson, says that it was a kind of, of sign language that he was trying to communicate to this man in a way that he could understand that something was happening. He certainly couldn't just walk up to him and talk to him and have the man uh, understand what he was saying. And it does make some kind of a sense. You know, even, even the fact that he looks up to heaven, does Jesus have to look up to heaven to pray? 
No, but for that man, you know, probably kneeling before him, when you see someone looking up, what do you know? You typically would think what's happening. He's praying. He's looking up to heaven for the healing of this man. He was seeking this man's healing from heaven and not from some kind of a parlor trick or even from, from medicine. The next thing Jesus does, Mark says he didn't just look up. He looked up to heaven and what else did he do? It's easy to read right past it. He sighed. He sighed. That's going to happen again later on in chapter 8 as well. It's a repeating occurrence. So he, what does he do here? He signed, you know, put the fingers in the ears. He spat. He sighed and then he spoke. Well, why did Jesus sigh? Why did Jesus sigh? He was expressing anger and frustration, maybe sadness as well, over the sin and misery of this fallen world that he was seeing in front of him. You know, I, I didn't think of this myself until uh, this morning, but, you know, when, when you read through that passage in Isaiah 38, uh, of all the things you could notice, um, what did God tell Hezekiah through Isaiah about his tears? He heard his prayers, but what else did he, did he see? He saw he noticed Hezekiah's tears. He's not oblivious to it. We sometimes, when we're suffering, we think God's oblivious to our suffering. He's not. And the very fact that he sent his son uh, to, be, to become a man and die in our place and rise from the grave and even do all these things tells us he's not oblivious to our suffering. Jesus sighed. He, he feels the weight of our sin and our infirmities. He sympathizes and empathizes with our suffering and with this man's suffering in Mark chapter 7. It brings to my mind the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. You know, when you're a kid, uh, you're supposed to memorize Bible verses if you're a Christian kid. Uh, what's the easiest verse in the Bible to memorize? John 11.35. You know, Jesus wept. It's two words, right? It's, uh, don't, don't get any ideas. Right. But, but uh, you know, it's like you want credit for memorizing a verse. I got one. John 11:35, saying the verse is longer than the verse itself. Jesus, Jesus wept. Right. Well, he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and the people there. What did they say? Look how he loved him. This this it wasn't something that was nothing to him. It says twice in that chapter in John 11 that Jesus was, quote, deeply moved. John 11:33 and 38. Now, the, the Greek word there for, that's translated deeply moved is kind of an odd word. It's a hard word to translate uh, and feel like you're hitting the nail on the head. So to speak, in ancient secular writing, it was used of the snorting of a horse, of like a war horse, you know, kind of chomping at the bit, ready, ready to go uh, to war. It became a, a figure of speech of sorts for anger or even rage. So this picture of Jesus, he wasn't just this weepy-eyed, not that he didn't weep, but it was more than just sad, although it, I'm sure it, it included sad as well. It was almost an anger or a rage about it. B.B. Uh, Warfield, a great American theologian from years past, wrote a book called uh, The Person and Work of Christ. I highly recommend anything he writes, but that's one of, the, one of his finest books. And he writes the following about that event, about the, the raising of Lazarus and Jesus being, quote, deeply moved. He says, it is the death, or I'm sorry, it is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. That is, that's the devil he's talking about there. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb in Calvin's words again, quote, as a champion who prepares 
for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance and open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. And here it is. What John does for us in this particular statement about Jesus being deeply moved is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites on our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression, and under the impulse of those feelings has wrought out our redemption. It's a long quote, but I hope that the point is clear. Jesus is not some robotic, unfeeling, uncaring, unmoved mediator or savior. And he shows that to us in all these different ways, including this, this rage that's hard to express at the tomb of Lazarus, even while he wept, and also in our text when it says he, he sighed. And Mark repeats it again in chapter 8, that Jesus sighed over something. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16 tells us this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. In other words, he came down, he was incarnate, he died, he was raised, and went back to the right hand of his father, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ's sympathy, Christ's ability to feel our pain uh, as our great high priest should lead us to coming to him boldly for help to the throne of grace. The, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is able to sympathize with you in your weakness, in your suffering, in your temptation. And isn't temptation maybe one of the worst forms of suffering? Our sins are even worse than some of our sicknesses. Uh, the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ, does not have a heart of stone. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us to hold fast our confession of faith in him, Hold fast our confession and learn to draw near to him in prayer with confidence. Why? Why with confidence? Because you know your high priest, Jesus Christ, sympathizes with you in your weaknesses. That should give us confidence that he is ever disposed to sympathize and to give us grace to help in time of need. In our text in Mark, the last thing Jesus does to the man is speak. It's almost like you'd expect that to be first, but he does all these other things before he gets there. He uses an Aramaic word. We don't know if the man would have understood it. He didn't, couldn't hear yet, so it probably wasn't for his benefit in the first place. But Mark, thankfully, translates that phrase for us as what? As be opened. You know, be opened. His, his ears, the fact that he spoke out loud at all kind of shows us that there were other people around him. It wasn't just Jesus and this man alone. It was probably the people that brought him to Jesus that were included in this group. And what was the result? What happened? Just what Jesus said happened, right? It's, he was completely healed, just like in creation back in Genesis chapter 1 and in the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, when the Lord speaks, whatever he commands comes to pass. No one else can do that except the Lord. In verse 35, Mark says, the man's ears were opened 
His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Now that, that word there for released, uh, that, that phrase about his tongue being released, uh, a more literal kind of wooden, you wouldn't really put it this way and you were going to make a translation to put out for publishing, but, but a, a more wooden way of translating that would be the chain of his tongue was loosed. I think some translations talk about a cord or something or a line. It's, it's the same word that we use for someone in prison that's held in chains. The chain of his tongue was loosed. He was finally able to speak freely and speak plainly. If you can imagine what a relief that must have been to that man who maybe had lots of things to say and couldn't communicate anything in an effective way. Well, the next thing we're going to see is the response to the healing. We see that the manner of, of Jesus healing. We've noticed that Jesus doesn't do everything the same way every time. Nobody can repeat what he does because he doesn't seem to have a program. He doesn't seem to have a, here's the steps I always go through. Sometimes he tells someone, like in the previous section, go home, your daughter's healed. He didn't even have to go to the door. Here he touches the man, speaks to the man, prays for the man. Well, what's the response to the healing? It, you know, it's kind of strange. If we were writing this, if I were writing this, maybe if you were writing this, which thankfully we're not, um, we, we aren't the ones writing scripture, um, Whose reaction does, does, does Mark, as far as I can tell, not focus on? The man. Now, he might be included in this, but I, I, don't, I, my, I get the sense he isn't. Who does he focus on? Probably the people that brought him. We don't know. He doesn't define who they are when he says they. He just, he just talks about them. But he talks about, I think, the group that brought him to Christ in the first place. Now that the man spoke freely, how did they respond? What did they do when they saw what Jesus did? And what did Jesus do? What's the first thing Jesus told them after be opened? Keep it shut. You know, <laughs> be open, but let's not be open too much. You know, it says he, he charged them to tell no one. It's like you asked me to heal your friend. I healed your friend. This isn't what he said, but it's the effect of what he said. Now, let's keep it quiet. He can talk, but let's keep it quiet. Don't go telling everybody. But just like in the previous passage, when Jesus was trying to stay hidden, uh, it didn't kind of work out that way. Jesus said, you know, there, what does he say? He says, he charged them, verse 36, the more he charged them, what? The more zealously they proclaimed it. The more, the more, uh, it's like the more he tries to quiet them down, the more they, they, they talk, the more they tell people about what he says. Now, there's certainly some, a lot of irony here in this passage, isn't there? Healing a man who can't talk and then telling everybody to be quiet is, is one thing. Um, he, you know, this man's a mute, and you'd think the first thing he wants to do is talk, and Jesus kind of tells him, no, you know, it's like, no, 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 let's keep it down. Um, his friends, you know, you can, you know, if Jesus, when Jesus tells you not to do something, it's a sin to do it, right? We don't want to play with words, but there's a sense, I can't help but, but seeing in our text, there's, it's almost like Mark is, is snickering as he writes it. You know, it, there's, a, there's an irony here. And I think we're going to see that in the words that he used to describe what they, what they do. They, it's like they can't help themselves. And how could you when you saw what Jesus just did? And they start telling everybody. Now, now they don't just tell. And the word zealously has the idea of, of exceedingly. It's, 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 poor, it's bubbling over the top. They can't, they can't contain themselves in what they're doing. But the Greek word there that, that, that is, that's used for proclaiming, it's the same word that we usually translate as preach. It's K. Russo. It's preach. They weren't just kind of, psst, come here, 
You know, they were they were shouting it from the rooftops. They were telling anybody who would listen, uh, and they weren't they weren't being quiet about it. They weren't being shy about it. Uh, they weren't they were they were preaching it. Mark used the same word back in in Mark five twenty to talk about the man who had been possessed by legion. There's some odd preachers in the book of Mark. You're used to an odd preacher, but what does it say? It says in, in Mark 5.20, he began to, the demon-possessed man who was healed, he began to proclaim, same word, K. Russo, preach, preach, quote, how much Jesus had done for him. The capitalist was like the preaching capital of the Gentile world, world it seems like. Everywhere Jesus went and healed someone, it, it, people became preachers. Now, we're told in that passage that everyone marveled. Well, no kidding. You see this guy who was out of his mind breaking chains in a cemetery suddenly preaching about Jesus and they were and they marveled they were astonished what happened here in our text verse 37 Mark says that they were astonished beyond measure nobody could believe I guess a pun intended they couldn't believe their ears like what just happened how how is that possible and they're talking about Jesus well even before, even earlier in Mark's gospel, before he healed that man who had been possessed, back in Mark chapter 1, he healed and cleansed a leper. A leper he had cleansed. In Mark 144, he tells the man not to say anything. You know, he tells him to go to the priest, you know, show the priest you know, everything so you can be okay to go back in the temple. I'm paraphrasing. But that leper, he tells him not to say anything. Sounds like the same kind of thing going on there. And it says that man, quote, went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Well, the, the Greek word there that the ESV renders as talk, talk freely about it. Guess what word that is? Keruso, preach. That leper, the one who was too unclean to go to the temple because he was a leper, suddenly is preaching to everyone so much that Jesus had to go hide into hiding. He had to go out into desolate places because this leper was telling everyone he could find about what Jesus had done for him. So this, you know, I think Mark's trying to make a point here throughout, throughout his, 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 uh, his gospel, but certainly in our text. You know, we, what we see in our text and throughout the book of, of Mark is kind of the reversal, the opposite of what you see in the book of Jonah. Jonah is one of those books that's, after I preached through it, it's stuck in my head, and it's still stuck in my head years, years later. Uh, but, you know, there's, in a sense, there's a bunch of anti-Jonas in the book of, of Mark. And why do, why do I say that? What was Jonah supposed to do? What did God tell Jonah to do? He should have liked it. Jonah should have been... Chomping at the bit to go. Give me, where's the first boat to Nineveh? I can't wait to go tell him God's going to wipe him out. Right? Isn't that what the message was? His message wasn't God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. His message was God's going to turn you over like a pancake. He's going to destroy you. He's going to over, overturn is the word he used. He's going to overturn you in 40 days. You guys' days are numbered. I can't wait to sit up on the hill and eat popcorn and watch. Right? But he didn't go. He's commanded to preach. And what does he do? The exact opposite. Gets on a boat going the exact opposite direction. The last thing he wants to do is go preach at Nineveh. Well, what do we see in our text? Not being commanded to preach, being commanded to be quiet. But what do they do? They can't help themselves. They're preaching. That's the word Mark uses intentionally. They're preaching about Jesus who had healed their friend. 
you know, he, he tried with all his might to keep them silent, but the more he charged them, the more zealously, uh, the more zealously they, they preached. You know, I think Mark's use of the word Caruso here, is, it, it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. And I think as, as guilty as they were in one sense for, for disobeying Christ, I mean, when the Lord says don't do something, don't do it. Don't, don't take this as an excuse. Well, sometimes God works good out of it. That's not what we're saying. Uh, but I think there is some irony there that, that, you know, they were charged not to speak and yet they, they preached. While we in the church today, kind of like Jonah in some ways, you know, we've been given the Great Commission. We've been commanded. Everybody isn't a preacher, right? Nobody, everybody isn't ordained to preach. But there's a, there's a kind of preaching that's not what I'm doing here. And that's the kind of preaching that we're all commanded and commissioned as Christ's people to do. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Primarily, that's, that's done by the church. That commission is given to the church, but the church is more than the pastor. Although the pastor and everyone else is supposed to preach to the lost as well, but we're, we're actually commanded to preach, and often, what do we not do? I speak for myself. I don't know if I speak for you or anyone else, but we often are silent when we shouldn't be. We've been commanded to do just the opposite. I think, in some ways, the, the, dis, the disobedience of these men in their preaching kind of puts many of us certainly myself, to shame in our silence when it comes to the gospel of Christ to those. You know, we should be a lot more like these men who bring their friend to the one man who can help them. And when he helps them, they can't wait to tell other people about the one man who helped their friend. Why? What do they think was going to happen? People that need sinners who in their misery need Christ are going to get brought by their friends to the one who could heal them and help them as well. Well, that the last thing we should notice in our text is the meaning of, or the significance of the healing. Um, what was it these people were so zealously preaching? Um, look at Mark, Mark uh, 7.37. There Mark writes, They were astonished beyond measure, saying what? He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What were they preaching? What was the content? The, if you could pin it down to one word, what were they preaching? They were preaching Whom? They were preaching Christ, that he had done all things well. The phrase that is adapted into that the song we, we sang a little while ago, all the way my Savior leads me, Jesus doeth all things well. Now that might be a, an odd sounding phrase. Uh, I know it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like something you know, in and of itself that should make them exceedingly amazed. Hey, Jesus does a good job. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's quite the sense of what... Of what he's uh, of, of what they were saying, um, it doesn't mean that Jesus had just done good things or that everything he did was good. Those things are true, but I don't think that's what made them um, amazed. Now that that wouldn't explain this super amazement these people uh, had experienced in seeing what Jesus did. Uh, he, it does say that they were astonished beyond measure. Now that uh, you could put that they were super exceedingly amazed, or it's it's. Their preaching, a similar word was used about their preaching. It was excessive or it was exceeding. Their amazement was super exceeding. That's, that, that's the, the connection uh, between those two things. They had witnessed something that no one else had ever done. Jesus did. Healed the, the, the deaf and the dumb. No one, no one could do those things. Now, we, we have no reason to suspect that they were familiar with Old Testament prophecy. This is a major, you know, for the most part, it's a Gentile area. Remember, Jesus was trying to get away. These, the, I don't, we don't know if there were any synagogues here. There might have been. Uh, these crowds probably didn't know the Old Testament much. 
They probably didn't know Messianic prophecy very well. They probably weren't acquainted with Isaiah, the prophecy of, of Isaiah. But this miracle of Christ and healing the deaf and the dumb uh, is the fulfillment, uh, as most things in the, in the Gospels tend to be, of, of Messianic prophecy. In Isaiah 35, if you read through Isaiah 35, we read through it here as our scripture reading probably a month ago, um, it describes the coming of the Lord to save his people. It's, it's one of the greatest chapters in that whole first 39 chapters because you have all these, these prophecies of doom and judgment, you know, God's hand of chastisement, even upon his own people. And then 35, it's like somebody flips the light on. You know, it's, it's guess what? God, the Lord is going to come. God is going to come save his people. Um, it even in that chapter mentions Lebanon by name, which is where Tyre was, the previous verses. So it's, I don't think it's an accident that Mark is, is uh, pinpointing this or hinting at it. Well, this is what, Mark, what Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 says. Isaiah, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 says, Then the eyes, when the Lord comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Unstopped. Same, you know, be opened. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. He's got this in the back of his mind for sure when he's writing this, this account, one commentator points out that this story concludes, he says, with a confession of faith which focuses on the messianic significance of the incident. So this, it, it doesn't sound, doesn't hit you over the head, but this whole thing about Jesus doing all things well, he even does what? The things that Isaiah spoke about. Makes the deaf to hear and the mute uh, to speak. That's, if, if anything, verse 37 is the point of the whole passage. If you get nothing else out of this passage, I hope you get something out of it, but if you get nothing else out of this passage, look at verse 37 and, and let that drive it home like a hammer hitting a nail. That's, that's the, whole, the whole point. Jesus had done all things well. He even healed the, the deaf and the mute. The Messiah, that's the work of the Messiah. It's the work of God's Savior, the Savior of sinners. As, as J.C. Ryle, uh, can't preach without quoting him, right? Uh, he, he says, he that healed the deaf and dumb still lives. And that doesn't mean that we should expect physical healings of, of all kinds of things. I don't think that's what Ryle is saying. But he's saying that he's still mighty to save. The one who, who, who opened the ears of the deaf and, and made the mute speak still can do just that. In fact, every time he saves someone, he does that even in a, in a bigger sense than he does when he heals their physical malady. Someone who's dead in sin needs life from the dead. Every time someone comes to Christ, it's a result of Jesus giving life from the dead, making someone who was dead in their sins alive in him and giving them the gift of repentance and of faith. May our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who still does all things well, work in you and I by his Holy Spirit, that we too might be rightly astonished beyond measure like those people were by his grace and mercy and power towards us, in our salvation. May we be amazed by the grace of God. And may that lead you and I to zealously proclaim his praises to our neighbors that Jesus still does all things well and salvation from sin and misery is to be found in him alone. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus does all things well, that he has shown his power, his almighty power to save in all these different things in the Gospels that he's able to to break the power of demon possession in the previous passage we looked at last Sunday. He's able to open the ears of the deaf and unchain the tongue of the mute. 
And he's still able to do that even today. We thank you that he brings life from the dead, even even now, no differently than he did in this times we're looking at here in the Gospel of Mark. And we ask that you would you would work in us by your spirit. Help us to be more amazed, super exceedingly amazed by the grace of God towards us and his work in our salvation, that we might too go forth and and proclaim his praises, to, to sing and proclaim and even preach the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light in his kingdom. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.